I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe with journalist Daniel Trilling and his book, Lights in the Distance. Daniel Trilling is editor of New Humanist magazine and has reported extensively on refugees in Europe. His work has been published in the London Review of Books, Guardian, New York Times and others and won a 2017 Migration Media Award. His first book, Bloody Nasty People, The Rise of Britain's Far Right, was long-listed for the 2013 Orwell Prize. And Dan's latest book is Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe. Dan, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Um, So tell me how this book came about. Um, So I've been working on the subject of refugees and migration since about 2012, and immediately before that, I'd been um, I'd, I'd published a, a, a previous book that was about the far right in Britain. And at first, actually, once once I was finished with that book, I thought, well, I, I want to see what's happening in Europe. And my first idea was to do a bit of reporting in Europe and find out about what was happening with the far right and wider politics of immigration in some other countries. And at the end of 2012, I went to Athens for the first time um, to do a a kind of long report about the effects of the crisis and EU-imposed austerity, how that was playing out in various different ways, including contributing to the rise of Golden Dawn, who were the neo-Nazi party in Greece. And as part of that reporting, I went and interviewed this Afghan family who were were in Athens because I'd read about how Golden Dawn were targeting migrants um, how there was also quite a lot of police violence towards migrants at the time as well, and was actually incredibly shocked by what I've, I found. I, I went and met this family who were living in an inner city neighbourhood of Athens. They were had come to Europe as refugees from Afghanistan. It was a husband and wife with three small children, and I just had never encountered a situation quite as hopeless as that before. I mean, I've you know I'm a journalist and I've done quite a lot of work on subjects where people get into various kinds of difficulties, but it was what shocked me about it was the the way that everything had combined to put them in this situation where they were trapped so it was that not just they were the targets of racist violence but the whole system that should have existed to protect them and ensure their rights had broken down as I you know later 
found out from investigating the topic more widely, you know, right from the kind of international frameworks intended to protect refugees down to, you know, the local police force who should have been ensuring their safety. But actually, as the family told me, we're as much a threat to them as the neo-Nazi gangs who went around attacking Afghan migrants at night. So it was really after that that I thought, well, actually, this is kind of more important than what I was what I was looking at at the time. And I, I really want to see what is happening. What's going on in Europe to produce these situations where migrants who are moving for various reasons seem to just be getting stuck in these situations where they're, you know, in detention centres, stuck at borders or even in the heart of European cities, but, you know, they're not really able to participate in the life around them. So that was what kind of got me set on on the path of this project. There's also a a personal interest here. At the end of the book, you talk about your, your grandmother, Teresa, and how she was a refugee herself. Yeah, that's right. So as well as that, actually two of my grandparents were refugees, both my mum's parents. Uh, My granddad uh, also was technically a refugee, although his family were well off and it was a dull story. They left Russia during the Civil War and came to the UK with all of their money intact at the end of that story. So not so much to say about that. Uh, But my grandmother, who also I, I grew up either on the same street as or in the same house as, so knew her much better, Had was actually a refugee twice in her life. So she was a refugee also from the Russian Civil War as a child and had a very difficult and dangerous journey, involved walking for three days across the borderlands between what is now Ukraine and Poland and ended up in Berlin, where, because her family were Jewish, she was then made a refugee for a second time in 1939 when she fled Nazi Germany and came to London. So I grew up in a house where there were a lot of stories about those experiences, you know, when my when my grandmother looked after me and my brother when we were when we were little children to, to keep us amused, she would often just tell us the story of how she escaped from Kiev or the story of how she ended up in Britain. And I suppose that meant I've always had that in the, in the back of my mind that I've got some kind of connection to those stories. But it was only really at this point in 2012 that I decided, actually, I want to write about this. And one of the things that was quite interesting to me was, you know, in one way, things were familiar to me. But in a way, having that in my background only reinforced how different it is for some people who are who are taking similar journeys today. And so we've been talking about refugees in the main so far. Mm-hmm. But of course, you've also mentioned that this that definition excludes a lot of other people, people you describe in the book as irregular migrants. You know, the right wing press might say economic migrants. How does I don't know, I guess the UN define what a refugee is. Right, so these are tricky terms, partly because they have different definitions depending on who's doing the talking. And the word refugee is a really good example of that, where in a colloquial sense, it might mean somebody who's had to flee their home for a variety of reasons, you know, war, persecution, some kind of disaster. In terms of the international framework that is set up to give rights to certain kinds of refugees, it's quite it's more narrowly defined than that everyday meaning. And it's someone who is forced out of their home country, so they have to cross an international border because they're at risk of their being persecuted or they're at risk of their safety is at risk on account of their being them being a member of a particular social group or minority or there's a protection for people fleeing a generalised kind of war zone. And this is the, the 1951 UN Refugee Convention and that's translated into the national laws of various different countries around the world uh, and also supranational bodies like the EU. So the idea behind that is really that... It's to do with the way in which rights are guaranteed in in the world as it is. So, you know, we have this idea of human rights and and an understanding that certain rights are supposed to be universal. You know, the right to family life, the right not to be persecuted, etc., etc. But 
in a world that is still made up of nation states, the thing that guarantees you your rights is being a member of a nation state. So it's, you know, as British citizens, we can access certain rights in Britain. And people who are not British citizens, or where it's a grey area, so think of the Windrush scandal recently, suddenly find that their rights are much more limited. And so when you're forcibly displaced from your home country, you often lose access to those rights. You become either effectively or legally speaking, stateless, uh, which is what happened to my grandmother, for example, when she was forced from her home during the Russian Civil War. Um, after the Russian Civil War, Lenin signed a decree that said all Russians who had left during the war would be stripped of their Russian or Soviet citizenship, but they had no citizenship anywhere else. And so actually it was the failure to create a system that could really deal with that effectively in the 1920s and 30s that contributed to some of the kind of horrors of the Second World War, in fact, where you know, in the lead up to that, the kind of anti-refugee discourse, anti-migrant discourse fed into the rise of, of fascism in Europe. Um, and so the, the the framework that was set up after World War II was intended to prevent that happening again. And so that's what we're left with. But the the thing is, it's it's quite clearly limited in certain ways. So that legal definition of a refugee does not, for example, cover somebody who is forced to flee their homes because of climate change, because that's not a political threat. And it certainly doesn't cover people who are forced to leave by poverty. So what you find, certainly in Europe in the last decade or two, is that because Europe is trying to deter or filter out migrants that it doesn't want coming to Europe from other parts of the world, that the routes that refugees in the, uh, you know, that defined legal sense are taking are often taken by other people as well the thing that I also found through reporting the book in the way that I did which is by following a series of individuals over quite long periods is that if you see it from their point of view if you see it from the point of view of somebody who is trying to retain control of their life in a very difficult situation they may have been forced from their home but then have to negotiate their way through three four five different countries to reach somewhere else that they're moving in and out of these categories all of the time so you know somebody who flees their home in Syria because of the war there say you know maybe it's a classic case of persecution they're a young man who the government is trying to forcibly conscript into the army and he flees his home when he crosses the border into say Turkey perhaps he's a refugee in that sense if he then decides well I'm not getting what I need to rebuild my life in Turkey so I'm going to go to Europe you know he may well have a case for refugee protection in Europe but there's clearly other factors at play some of which are economic you know and, and that's one of the really important things to understand about these kind of experiences and that kind of migration, is that just because somebody drops into one particular category or another, they don't stop being a person in all of the other senses in which we're people. Refugees have also got economic interests, needs, and also desires. I think that's a really important thing as well, that people don't stop wanting things just because they may be in humanitarian need. I think there's been a general failure in the way we talk about the refugee crisis and that kind of migration to really fully understand all of that. And I think if you don't, then it, it causes problems. So throughout the 20th century, obviously, there was, you know, some major migration crisis, not least the one that your, your grandmother was caught up in. And there's been many others. But in general terms, migration happens. It always happens. And actually, the numbers don't really change that much. What tends to change is the intensity of, you know, the country that people are coming from changes. You know, at the moment, it's Syria. You know, in the 90s, it was the Balkans. So just going back to that hypothetical example of someone you've just described, perhaps coming from Syria, crossing over into Turkey as a refugee, but then deciding they want to move further on into Europe. 
So they would probably cross over into Greece. Now they're in the EU. So what's the situation? You talk about something that's called the Dublin system. What's that? Yeah, so just before I explain the Dublin system itself, one of the things that I've tried to show in the book is how, you know, this term refugee crisis is very familiar to everybody. And in in most cases, it's used to mean the sharp increase in the number of people coming to the EU to claim asylum in the years 2015 and 16. Now, that's certainly true. There was a sharp increase in the number of people coming to claim asylum. A large proportion of them, maybe around half, came from Syria, but it wasn't only Syria. There were people coming from fleeing wars and repression in various countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, Eritrea, places in West Africa, and so on. But that doesn't really tell the whole story. And it also, to talk of the refugee crisis only in those terms, gives the impression of Europe as this kind of pristine, unsullied continent that suddenly has this arrival of these strangers who cause all of this chaos. And that, that I, that's a completely false picture, not least because Europe obviously is already intimately involved in the fates of the countries that they come from and that Europe is a continent of migration inwards and outwards and the rest of it. But also because as well as a refugee crisis, there's also something that I've tried to describe as a border crisis, which is much more to do with the decisions taken by European states about who they want to let into their country and who they don't. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to explain that as concisely as possible, but it's it's really to do with the fact that as the EU has grown uh, and has tried to set up this this kind of privileged zone of free movement within the EU for its own citizens and certain other people, and to enable you know capital, goods, communication to flow freely around the EU, it's required the growth of this militarized border around the edges of the European Union, and that's been a mix of you know physical infrastructure, fences, security patrols, surveillance and the rest of it, but also some quite complicated legal and diplomatic arrangements. So some of those are to do with the EU and its neighbours outside. So for the last 10, 15 years, Europe has been drawing up treaties and agreements with neighbouring countries such as Morocco, Libya, Turkey, Ukraine, often that offer a kind of exchange, you know, we'll give your citizens easier travel within the EU if you agree to police migration on our behalf. So, for example, Ukraine has got these detention centres around the west of the country, quite near to the EU borders, that are built with help from the EU Mm -hmm. so that Ukraine can detain would-be migrants into Europe and process their asylum claims there. Uh, Within Europe itself, there's this thing called the Dublin system, which is a way of regulating whose responsibility it is to process asylum claims when people come into Europe uh, and try to claim asylum. And the key stipulation of that is that it's supposed to be the responsibility of the EU country where the asylum seeker first sets foot to process their claim. Now, that is a system that was pushed for heavily by countries in northwestern Europe, so the richer countries in the EU, Britain, France, Germany, uh, countries in Scandinavia, and so on. And I think at the time it was set up, their justification was, well, we're the most popular destinations for migrants. A lot of people fly into our big cities and claim asylum there directly, so this will even it out a bit. Now, obviously, that doesn't hold if you have large numbers of people crossing into the EU by land or sea, because then they're arriving in the southern and eastern EU member states, who also tend to be the you know poorer, less well-equipped to accommodate and protect the people that are arriving. And really, it's all of that that contributed to the crisis that we've seen in the last few years, because you had desperate people who were willing to travel, even though they were told they're not allowed to, forced into narrower and more dangerous bottlenecks, which meant that they arrived in Greece, or they arrived in Italy, or they arrived in Bulgaria in very chaotic, dangerous fashion. 
and Europe's system for dealing with that basically collapsed. So the book is structured into, you, you visit three, well, let's say borders, but basically like, you know, theoretical borders in some respects, but basically mm-hmm. points of entry where there has been a crisis point. The first one being Calais. People will be familiar about, you know, the jungle and the sort of camps that have mm-hmm. set up around Calais over the over the last decade or so. And I want to talk about why that is, because, you know, people will presume that that's because, you know, I don't know, everybody wants to come to the UK or something. But those camps are there because of disagreements over the agreements between the UK government and the French government, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And so, yes, the book is divided into four sections that each take a different area of Europe as their focus. And I deliberately put Calais as the first one because it's a border, but it's right in the middle of Europe. You know, it's not near those southern or eastern edges of the EU at all. And yet, you know, the the very familiar scenes from there make it look as if it's it's a kind of frontier zone. And that is entirely, as you say, to do with disagreements between EU member states over whose responsibility it is to accommodate asylum seekers or other kind of migrants. And I think it's a particular irony for Britain that actually Calais should be regarded as a symbol of how tough Britain's borders are. The reason there is, you know, there was a large camp called the Jungle in Calais in 2015 and 16, and there continue to be lots and lots of different encampments all up the French coast now, is because it's actually very difficult to get into the UK as an undocumented migrant um, if you're travelling in that fashion. You know, you have to hide underneath a lorry and, you know, the ports, channel tunnel entrances are all heavily patrolled. Hiding under a lorry, as I kind of trying to explore in my book is, is is a very dangerous and frustrating and difficult thing. Well, you do talk about that, so let's talk about it now. How do you hide under a lorry? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things I found as I got deeper into this project was that I, I started to drift away from the, the usual kind of stories that are, are gathered by journalists talking talking to refugees. Uh, so I, I became less interested in sort of what, what happened in your home country, tell me about your dangerous journey to Europe, and just started to be really interested in the nuts and bolts of some of these things. So how did, you know, literally, how do you hide under a lorry? Uh, and I was very lucky to find this one young man called Jamal, who um, originally came from Sudan. He'd spent five years in Europe already, living on the streets as an undocumented migrant before he even made it to Calais and had become a kind of expert in how you do this. And, you know, he drew me diagrams and showed how, uh, you know, you're, you know, you find a lorry park where you can wait unobserved and then when a lorry pulls up to stop, just run very quickly at the back of it before the driver's got time to see you in the wing mirrors and crawl underneath as quickly as you can and hide yourself in between the wheel axle and the base of the container on the back of the lorry and you know that's a very risky daring physically demanding activity nine times out of ten as I've observed with people you fail you fall off you get caught Uh, you have to be able-bodied to do it often it's only a thing that men can access because uh, women are either kind of kept away by people smugglers or they're just you know at risk of assault from others so it's also a kind of Well, it's like any other form of travel, your ease of travel is determined by wealth and class and social status. And that goes for hiding on a a lorry as much as it does for taking an aeroplane or taking a train. So if you've got the money to pay a smuggler, perhaps they have got a key that would unlock the back of a lorry and they could hide you inside. If you haven't, then you've got to do something more dangerous like hide under the wheel axles. So I was really interested in just exploring all of that and just finding out in the most direct detail 
how does this happen? Partly because I think it's interesting. I think it's an aspect of life that's kind of all around us. And, you know, there's a value in knowing that in itself. But also, I think, particularly if, you've, if you're a journalist or, or some other kind of campaigner who thinks of themselves as broadly sympathetic to the, the people that, that you're dealing with, you kind of want to present only the good parts of the story. But I think it's actually really important to present the good and the bad because it gives a fuller picture of why people are making the decisions they do. And I think it also helps actually in the long run helps um, improve general attitudes towards the situation because I, I do think that often when we're just bombarded with stories of oh you should feel sorry for this person this person is wholly you know sort of innocent and you know they don't even have agency in their own lives you're just supposed to kind of feel sorry for them or give money or whatever that that can create hostility as much as it can create sympathy and I think one way to break that down is just to lay stuff out as it is. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dan Trilling. We're talking about his book Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe. And Dan, just staying in the Calais section for a moment, you also tell the story of an Iraqi woman, Zainab, who I think really brilliantly illustrates the idea of, you know, the difficulty of not just a stateless person, but I guess how anybody could become a stateless person, because she's a relatively, you know, middle class woman from a, you know, well, relatively middle class family in Iraq. Obviously, because of the, you know, the situation there, for reasons which you, you can tell us her story, she's called upon to basically leave with her children and travel across Europe. She basically leaves with $30,000 and yet still has to do this terrible years-long journey with people smugglers paying them money all the time ever dwindling pile of money has to you know get put in the back of a lorry where they nearly suffocate at one point when most people would think well of course you just get on a plane 
Yeah, well, exactly. And I, I imagine that parts of her journey, she also asked herself the same thing. Um, but that's a good example of how tougher border policies are often presented as a way to combat people smuggling. You know, people smuggling is actually a very diverse activity. Uh, the people who do it do it for different reasons. You know, some of them are migrants who are helping other migrants. Others are doing it purely for business reasons. Others are, you know, criminal gangs who, who are actively looking to exploit the people that they're, they're helping move around. But it's very often presented by officials as an entirely negative activity that's a threat to the people that are being smuggled. But actually, often it's the border policies themselves that kind of create smuggling and boost the trade because the harder you make it for people to travel, if they really feel the need to travel, then they're going to be more likely to turn to the services of people who, who they think can help them. And Zainab's story is a really good example of how that can switch, you know, in a, a few days even in her case from being, you know, something that's helping her get what she wants to something that's left her completely trapped and at great risk. So as you mentioned, she, she fled Iraq um, in 2014 when ISIS, you know, swept across the north of the country, uh, took her three children, all of whom were under 10, with her. Luckily, because, because she was middle class and had um, assets at her disposal, she was able to quickly gather the money that could pay a quite established smuggling network to take her in lorries all the way from the Iraqi-Turkish border across to Greece through Europe to Calais. When she arrived in Calais, the contact in the network disappeared. She then had to turn to a group of smugglers she didn't know who stole all of her money and essentially held her semi-prisoner in a you know an unofficial camp on the edges of Calais. And... You know, at that stage, she was clearly at risk from the smugglers. But again, as I've tried, I think what comes up again and again in the different stories in the book, it's also the policies that are governing her movement that are causing that risk, you know, that uh, the Europe system for finding a kind of fair and safe and efficient way of making sure that people clearly in need, like she and her children were, have got access to rights and protections. So I want to move us on to the second part of the book, which is you situate us in Sicily in a port. And basically this is, you know, to look at the the crisis in the Mediterranean. Again, people will be familiar with images of refugees in unseaworthy boats. Um, I want to talk about what the situation was in the Mediterranean. There was a uh, Italian initiative called Mare Nostrum, which was basically set out to rescue people. But then other EU missions, which were basically doing completely the opposite. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the kind of long history of, of what's gone on in, in the Mediterranean is the bit of the Mediterranean between Libya and Tunisia and Italy, effectively, is of the EU trying to do things to stop migrants crossing to Europe and then its efforts backfiring and then bits of Europe, say the Italian government or maybe even European NGOs, having to go out there and clean up the mess and then the EU saying, oh, no, no, we don't want that because that's going to bring more migrants and then cracking down even further. Uh, and, and that's really been the story of what's happened between especially Libya and Italy in the last few years. So, you know, what, one, of the, one of the big contributing factors to this border crisis that I've, I've tried to describe in the book was the turmoil caused by the various Arab uprisings from 2011 onwards, which led to large numbers of people leaving um, countries in North Africa. You know, at first it was Tunisians leaving Tunisia during the uprising against the Ben Ali regime. Uh, then as, um, you know, Egypt and Libya became less stable it was also 
say, Syrians who were going via those countries to reach Europe or people coming from sub-Saharan Africa, uh, often who were, you know, they were living in, in Libya, say, and it became very unsafe for them and they had to get out. And the only way to get out was to go across the sea towards Italy. And at first, the EU tried to do as little as possible. It, you know, it's got a duty to rescue boats in distress in its own waters. But for several years, there would be big disputes between, say, the Italian and the Maltese navies about whose responsibility it was, because both countries didn't want to be the one that had to take in the migrants because of that Dublin system that would have said it was their responsibility. And at the end of 2013, there was a a really horrific shipwreck where it later emerged, there was a radio conversation between Italian and Maltese boats where as the ship was sinking over a period of several hours, they were arguing over which one had to go and pick it up. So after that, there was, I mean, there was basically the public in Italy were disgusted. Uh, the government decided, actually, we're just going to unilaterally send out our navy and go into international waters and rescue boats in distress because the humanitarian obligation to save lives outrides all of the other concerns. Unfortunately, what, what they were hoping was that that would pressure the EU to step in and support it, and the EU didn't. It, it effectively left Italy to run this very, very expensive search and rescue operation which ran all the way through to, uh, towards the end of 2014, Italy kind of announced a cut-off date, saying, well, we're going to stop at this point, so you are supposed to step in and help us, fellow EU members. And the replacement that was proposed was, I mean, it had re- search and rescue as part of its remit, but it was restricted to European waters, so, it, you know, most of the boats get into trouble not far from the coast of Libya when they're still in Libyan or international waters. And... You know, a large part of the money that went into this new EU operation was based on, you know, surveillance and deterrence rather than saving lives. Uh, but it's this is kind of the problem that when you you have a couple of decades of policies that are trying to shut off unwanted migration routes, what you end up with is, is kind of a, a worse problem than the one that you set out to solve, that you now have people still travelling but in, in re, you know, having really horrific experiences that you're then forced into the situation as Europe has been in the last few years, of choosing, well, do we go out and save lives and just accept that the migration is going to continue? Or do we do some really appalling stuff that is just based on the idea that, well, in the long run, we'll stop the migration and then no one will die because we'll have prevented them from coming in the first place. Uh, But that point is never achieved. You know, what you have is the kind of the crackdown and the journeys at the same time. One of the the refugees that you talked to in in this section, Cesar or Caesar from Mali, Mm -hmm. Tell us the journey he took, because part of that journey that ends up in Libya and then crossing the Mediterranean on a small boat to get to Sicily basically takes them walking for days through the Sahara. Yeah, so Caesar is originally from Mali. He was displaced there in 2012 by the Civil War because he was living in northern Mali. And over a period of about 18 months or more, he made his way from Mali to Algeria, then through Libya, then onto a boat that ultimately brought him to Sicily. Now, it's actually quite important for me in the book that I don't tell all of the details of that journey straight up, because I was trying to say before, what I think of as a kind of humanitarian storytelling frame, where, uh, you know, the crudest example of it are those charity adverts that you get on, on the underground, where you see a picture of a sad child and it says, this person's had a horrible experience, please give us some money, please feel sad for this person. You know, that way round of telling stories 
it's obviously important. News media's got a real duty to get the most urgent bits of information out and put that up front. But I think it can have damaging effects as well. Because I think it can often be very alienating to only hear that about people. And Caesar, I, I mean, I knew the bare bones of his story quite soon after coming into contact with him. He actually, I didn't meet him in person for quite a few months. He found me on Facebook and started writing to me saying, why isn't Europe respecting the Refugee Convention? What are they doing? You know, why am I stuck in Sicily? Uh, and, then I, and then a few months later, I flew out to meet him. But I, I just thought, well, I'm just going to sort of spend time with this person and just find out who they are and like, let his story come as it does. And, you know, he wanted to ask me lots of questions. You know, he, he's, he's quite interested in politics. And, you know, he was sort of, why did Gordon Brown lose the election in Britain? You know, what's wrong with Britain? You know, this kind of stuff. We would chat, you know, he'd tell me his impressions of Europe. You know, so this thing about kind of humanitarian storytelling, he felt that really strongly about Italy. You know, he'd been there at this point maybe for nine months, a year, and he said, you know, the only time I see black people on the television is when they're, they're starving in Africa. You know, there's more to us than that. And so I've tried to tell it that way around in the book because I just feel it's a kind of... For me, it was really important to get readers to sort of meet people in the way that I had met them. But through this, I suppose I stayed in contact with Caesar for, for 18 months or so. And throughout the, the repeated times that, that we met, you know, just bits of what had happened to him in Libya and Mali and Algeria would just kind of surface. You know, we'd go, there'd be a pause in the conversation and he'd say something like, you know, if you're travelling in the Sahara at night you have to navigate by the lights on the horizon. You've got to look out for the lights in the distance and just hope that that's safety. So that's actually where the title of the book comes from because I thought that was a, a kind of image that resonated with everybody's stories in the book. You know, you're trying to get somewhere and you don't know if it's going to be a threat or not until you get there and you've just got to kind of push on. But after kind of stitching together his story from these little details, eventually I thought, OK, we know each other well enough that I can just say to him, would you be comfortable sitting down and just telling me about everything that happened to you on your journey and his story again is an example of where efforts to control migration have basically boosted very exploitative smuggling gangs who mistreat people in appalling ways because of the how he got caught up in the civil war in Mali he was taken out to the desert with a group of others and, and kind of left there to die they managed to walk and find a town nearby or find some shepherds that helped them and said, don't go to that town, there's soldiers there, we'll take you to the Algerian border. At the Algerian border, they were passed on to smugglers who took them across, but as payment kept them on their farm to work. You know, they had no choice in the matter, essentially, and it was up to the farmers to say, right, you've worked off your debt now, a few months later, we're going to take you on to the next stage. And Caesar basically made his entire way through Algeria and Libya like this, and sometimes the farms he was stuck on, they, you know, they treated him relatively well. At other points, he was effectively kept as a slave. He's gave me one particular story about when they crossed into Libya. And obviously Libya, after the fall of Gaddafi, has, you know, it's kind of collapsed into all of these different areas controlled by different militias. So there's a real, you know, rule of law does not exist in the country in, in a lot of places. And as he put it, you know, I, I once asked him, well, did you know if the people that stopped you in Libya were were they from the government or whatever and he said well, you, there's just someone pointing a gun at you and you don't really ask who it is at that point but you know he was kept in a, a windowless room with hundreds of other migrants and they were very severely abused by their captors and actually ended up digging their way out and pushing over one of the walls of the prison and all running off into the desert and you know I mean he managed to keep going and get to Tripoli where again he was put on another farm and eventually the, the farmer said right you paid off your debt now you can go to Europe 
not much choice about that. They were taken to a beach. There were men with guns around saying, leave all your possessions behind, get onto this inflatable boat. And they were set off. And so he, he told me this whole story. And for, actually for months and months, I mean, I'd been to his house, um, you know, found out lots of stuff about his life and his past and his family back home. What he didn't reveal to me until quite late on was that his younger brother was with him the whole time, who was at the time was sort of 18. You know, he'd taken... Caesar is he's probably about 30 years old. Uh, but this whole journey, he'd been watching out for his kid brother as well. And, I mean, I'm, you know, even sort of thinking about this gives me shivers now. I just think he's, such a, you know, a remarkable person in many ways, not least because his whole take on this is like, yeah, this happened. Uh, obviously, this is going to be with me for the rest of my life. But I just want to I just want to get on with my life, get a job and kind of forget about the past. And, you know, he's very frustrated because the dysfunction in Europe's asylum system means that he's still stuck there waiting for a decision on his asylum claim for three no, nearly four years after arriving, you know, so he's ready, you know, he doesn't want handouts, does want to work and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's really being held back and that's actually also something that's very common in the experience of asylum seekers that people who've come to Europe by these kinds of routes in the last few years will have suffered uh, quite traumatic experiences on their journeys but actually psychologically the really difficult part is after arrival because you've got the you've got the adrenaline and the elation of having arrived and finding yourself somewhere safe and then and then what you're left there to think about what's happened to you and if there aren't you know if there's not support in place if um, countries asylum systems are keeping people isolated or locked up or held in a kind of limbo that can really exacerbate you know the people's distress so the third flashpoint is the the border between Greece and Turkey, the river Evros. And you mentioned at the beginning of the interview when this book was, you know, just an idea, going to Greece, seeing what the situation in Greece was was like, and, and you meet a, a, a woman, Hakima, from Afghanistan and her family living in Athens and in that situation. And at the first meeting with Hakima, she ends up basically losing her temper and saying you know, you as a journalist, what can you do for me? What's the point? What can you do for her? Let's talk about what what do you hope to achieve by telling these people's stories in this book? Yeah, so that meeting with Hakima was one of the very first things I did as part of this project. And I think I'd gone in there with a somewhat naive idea that, you know, you go in, find people, tell their stories, and that'll help. And also that, you know, given given my family background, that, you know, this has happened before. And here's knowing that will help somehow and actually I was made to realize very quickly you know how does that help it doesn't and I think journalists can do great work that kind of exposes wrong and leads to immediate change I mean I think that Amelia Gentleman's reporting on uh, Windrush citizens in the last few months is an example of that it's it's caused you know an immediate political reaction and the government have said how they're going to try and put it right I think that's the exception rather than the rule to journalism actually and I think it can be a bit of a for me at least it's a kind of misleading path it's the wrong path to be thinking that what you're doing is going to immediately change anything in a way it's I see certainly what I do the way that I try and piece the stories together it's it's not about changing anything immediately it's about showing how complex and messy and confusing and distressing situations can you know you can explain how we reach that point but it's kind of piecing back together which often people in the situations aren't equipped to do at that particular moment because they're dealing with much more urgent questions of how do I survive or how do I how do I get to where I want and 
with Hakima, who who was part of this Afghan migrant community in Athens. It was very important to try and do that with with the story of her and her community because they were, you know, this was this was several years before what we call the refugee crisis existed, but all of the same things were happening because of a combination of different big political systems and ideas breaking down. And, you know, they were just unfortunately caught right at the centre of it. So you had the breakdown of the EU's asylum system, uh, but then you also had the effects of the financial crisis and EU-imposed austerity policies on Greece, where the social fabric of Greece was, you know, being torn apart. And some people in Greece were blaming migrants for their plights. Other people were not at all and were fighting back against the racists and the fascists who were trying to make migrants the, the kind of scapegoat for it. But their ability to kind of hold communities together was being really, really tested by everything that they were they were kind of facing at the time. And what I tried to do through the story of the one neighbourhood where, where Hakima and her family were living in 2012 was just show how it had got to that point. You know, how that how those big factors had all combined in little ways at a local level to create this situation where, you know, her husband had lost his job. The women of the community were so scared to go out in the daytime, they had to go out at night and rummage through bins to find food. And I do think there's a real value in kind of journalism that, that is asking, well, how, how did we get to this point? I've been talking to Dan Trilling. We've been talking about his book Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe, which is out now from Picador. Dan, thanks so much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.